0: SECTION 18 OF THE ART OF MUSIC, VOLUME 1, THE PRE-CLASSIC PERIODS. EDITOR-IN-CHIEF, DANIEL GREGORY MASON. THIS LibriVox RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. READ BY JAKE MELIZZIA. THE ITALIAN RENAISSANCE We have learned in the previous chapters how music, an incipient art, fastened in the bondage of religious mysticism, groped through the blackness of the medieval night, how bound by dogmatic rule it became the object of intellectual lucubration the scholastic medium of pedants who reared their stupendous structure of gothic intricacy beyond the reach of ordinary man that tower of babel in the building of which tongues were confounded till no one understood what he sang nor what he heard and we have seen how this edifice in adapting itself to the use of the denizens softened its lines and its angles, broadened its spaces and became a thing of beauty, a process in which we see reflected the dawn of a new era, when humanity breathes a freer air, that glorious spiritual awakening which found its religious expression in the Reformation, its aesthetic revelation in the Renaissance. We shall presently consider the influence of the former upon the course of music in Germany, Our immediate purpose is to follow the path of the parallel process accompanied through the Renaissance in Italy. In the words of J. Addington Simmons, the history of the Renaissance is the history of the attainment of self-conscious freedom by the human spirit manifested in the European races. In politics, it meant the breaking down of the reactionary forces vested in the Church and the Empire. In science, it meant the substitution of knowledge for superstition, The fearless exploring of new continents and the demonstration of the infinity of the universe in art, it meant the firing of man's imagination, the stimulation of his creative faculties by the revival of learning, that rediscovery of the classic past which restored the confidence in their own faculties to men striving after a spiritual freedom, which held up for emulation master works of literature, philosophy, and art, provoked inquiry shattered the narrow mental barrier imposed by medieval orthodoxy. Just as the artist humanized the altarpieces and the cloister frescoes upon which he worked, and so silently substituted the love of beauty and the interest of actual life for the principles of the Church, so the musician humanized the service of the Church, brought beauty, expression and emotion into his Masses and Motets, imbuing them with the dramatic spirit, the spirit of passion, which had never been absent from the secular music of the people, the music that is always indigenous to the soil. It is in this music that we must first seek the embodiment of the Renaissance spirit, which means the direct expression of human emotions in terms of aural beauty. That spirit has been associated in the history of music with two things, the invention of monody and the rise of opera both of which are placed about the end of the 16th century. But recent research has shown these apparently sudden events to be the outcome of a development extending back nearly 300 years, so that they become the objective rather than the starting point of our account, which will aim to trace the steps by which this momentous reform was accomplished. Our story has a direct connection with the previous chapter on secular music of the Middle Ages, Where we spoke of the art of the Provencal troubadours. Though their influence was not felt in Italy till late in the twelfth century, it bore a fruit as rich as it had in France. In the middle of the thirteenth, a number of troubadours and jongleurs visited Frederick II at Milan, in the train of Raymond Berengar, Count of Provence. The Emperor extended his patronage to them, as did also Charles de Anjou, the King of Naples. They became known among the people as uomini di Corti and Charlatanti because their chief theme was the exploits of Charlemagne, and the natives taught by them were called Trovatori and giocolini. These soon cultivated native poetry in the Italian vernacular, the Volgar Poesia, which spread its influence to northern Italy as well, and found representatives especially in Florence and Bologna. The thirteenth century records the names of Quitona Darezzo, Guido Guincelli, and Jacopone da Todi, and upon the threshold of the fourteenth stands Dante, twelve sixty-five to thirteen twenty-one, one of the greatest poets of all times, who with Petrarch, thirteen o four to thirteen seventy-four, and Boccaccio, thirteen thirteen to thirteen seventy-five finally demonstrates the power of the italian language as an artistic medium in these three simmons says italy recovered the consciousness of intellectual liberty what is more to our purpose they so clarified and amplified the italian tongue that it became the vehicle for a national literature in which were produced not only epics after the classic models but also lyric gems in new and spontaneous forms which would inspire the creation of melody among these poetic forms we frequently meet with canzone and madrigals then called mandriale from italian mandra hearth which were evidently written to be sung their melodies however were no longer composed by the poets themselves but by a class of musicians characteristic of italy during the renaissance the cantori liuto, lutenists who were essentially composers and singers as distinguished from the trovatori who were poets primarily one of these cantori a liuto was dante's friend casella whose name he has perpetuated in the purgatorio dante's ballate were everywhere known and sung according to sacchetti's novels and when dante overheard a blacksmith singing his song he scolded him for having altered it dante himself was according to an anonymous writer of the thirteenth century dilettore nel canto e ogni suono End footnote. the importance of the lutanists in this and succeeding periods of music calls for a brief explanation of their instrument the lute was a plucked string instrument somewhat resembling the guitar its origin was oriental the favorite instrument of the arabs it reached italy by way of spain and then spread all over Europe. In the 15th to the 17th century, it came to hold a place relatively as prominent as our pianoforte today. It was the household instrument par excellence and an important member of early orchestras. In shape, the lute resembles the mandolin rather than the guitar, but it was made in various sizes, varieties and ranges Guitarrone, theorbo, etc the number of strings was variable. Five pairs running across the fingerboard and an additional single one for the melody were fretted. The rest, running outside, were used only as open strings. The tunings varied at different periods, and, as in the case of the organ, a special kind of notation, or tablature, was used. It must not be supposed, however, that these lutinists were learned musicians in the sense of the contrapuntists, who, at this same period, flourished in the Netherlands, and who had already begun to invade Italy. They were not familiar with the complicated musical science of the time. The ecclesiastical modes, mensural science, notation and its ramifications, ligatures, prolation and proportions, the theory of consonants and dissonance, the laws of voice progression, etc., all combined to form a science so formidable as to baffle all but those devoting their lives to its study. A boy put to school in childhood could achieve only in manhood the knowledge of a cantor. As for composing, he would first have to be, as Kiesewetter says, a doctor of counterpoint. The lutanists were none such, they were essentially dilettanti, and hence their art, which was transmitted from ear to ear, has not been preserved to us. To gain a knowledge of the nature of their music, we must turn to the more learned native musicians who we know cultivated the same forms in the fourteenth century. Here we meet with the most remarkable revelations. We will recall how music in its course of development, under the guidance of the Church, chose a path which led directly away from the solo style of the folk-song, or the song of the troubadours, and into the realm of polyphonic imitation. It has been supposed, therefore, that the vocal solo had no place in the system and never appeared in the art music of the time but recent investigators have unlocked for us a treasure of song by a school of italian musicians of the early fourteenth century who perpetuated not only the solo style but the solo song with instrumental accompaniment which is the supposed invention of the florentine monadists of sixteen hundred fetis was the first to make known to the world the existence of the precious manuscript of the bibliothèque nationale in paris Dated thirteen seventy five, which contains the specimens of these early Renaissance masters, among whom we should mention Jacopo d'A Bologna, Giovanni de Cascia, thirteen twenty nine to thirteen fifty one, Francesco Landino, thirteen twenty five to thirteen ninety seven, and Giradellus de Padua. Their worth was appreciated not only by Fetis, who in speaking of Giovanni da Cascia, says that guillaume de Machaut, who was the most celebrated french musician of the same epoch does not show greater ability but also by other historians ambrose says if there the Italians' works take an inferior position to that of the netherlanders the reason is not lack of talent but the fact that because of a disposition deeply rooted in the italian nature and character which later bore the richest fruits the italians were to develop certain sides of the art Before it had to be subjected to the indispensable school of contrapuntalism. But none of the historians were aware of the full significance of this music until Johannes Wolff's study of menstrual notation appeared, and until Hugo Riemann's deductions for the first time placed it in its true light. It is this school, which he characterizes as the Italian ars nova, whose influence upon the French ars nova and its chanson literature we have already emphasized. The centre of this art is Florence, which Fetis calls the cradle of modern music. Its principal representative is Francesco Landino, mentioned above. The facts of his life are brief. He was born in Florence about 1325, the son of a painter of some reputation. Having lost his sight in his youth, he sought consolation in the study of music. He learned to play all the instruments then in vogue, and, it is said, even invented others but it was his ability on the organ that made him famous. In this he surpassed his contemporaries to such an extent that he was aptly styled Francesco degli Organi. The chief musicians of his time united to bestow upon him a laurel wreath with which the King of Cyprus crowned him in Venice. He died in his native city in 1390. What is true of his music applies in a great measure to that of his contemporaries, those named above and a number of others. The three principal forms into which their compositions are cast are the caccia, the ballata, and the madrigal. The caccia is the one indigenous form of the three, being of truly Tuscan origin. It is a canon for two voices, with or without a third as bass foundation, which does not participate in the canon, like the drone bass of Summa is icumen As its name implies, caccia, meaning chase, It is a hunting song, though later it is applied to the humorous description of a market scene. The ballata is clearly derived from the dance songs of the troubadours. Its form, as cultivated by the Florentines, shows at the beginning a phrase whose text and melody serve as a chorus refrain, ripresa. This is followed by a middle section which is repeated, piedi, over a different text. Then the opening section is again taken up, with fresh text as a volta after which it is repeated as refrain often there are a number of strophes, copla which are alike except for the texts of the piedi the madrigal too originated in provence being derived from the pastorel, while the latter however recounts amorous adventures with rural bells the madrigal poems of dante and his successors have for their subject the contemplation of the beauties of nature with a whimsical, philosophical, or sentimental conclusion. Its musical form is similar to the ballad and rondeau. It is divided into two parts with repeats, and its melodic phrases are usually not of greater length than would be required for about five text lines. We shall see later a new development of the madrigal in the polyphonic a cappella style, which became significant for the development of opera. The present form is, however, entirely monodic and accompanied. Herein indeed lies the most remarkable feature of these early forms of secular music in that they represent a definitely thought-out combination of vocal and instrumental music, whose existence at this period was until recently unsuspected. But the latest research has definitely shown that the doubtful melismatic figures without words which precede and follow the individual phrases are nothing but instrumental preludes, interludes and postludes. Riemann calls attention to the surprisingly definite harmonic basis of these songs, which seems far in advance of diaphony, faux bourdon and all the primitive forms of polyphony. There is a remarkably varied combination of intervals, octaves, sixths, fifths, thirds, also sevenths and ninths, used in the nature of passing notes or over a pedal, foreshadowing the manner of a much later day. Consecutive fifths and octaves occur rarely, and when they do are used in a way which is not very objectionable even to modern ears a strictly modal character is avoided by the frequent use of chromatics indeed this florentine ars nova of the fourteenth century has no connection with the laborious attempts of the paris school this is evident from the fact that it does not build motets upon a tuneless tenor or construct rondo and conducts in the clumsy manner of the organum but that it appears with entirely new fundamental forms and with such a certainty and natural freshness that a theoretical process of creation seems absolutely out of the question no this florentine new art is a genuine indigenous flower of italian genius if we nevertheless insist upon tracing its roots beyond the rich soil of tuscan literature we can only find it in the troubadour poetry of provence according to our authority there took place in the second half of the fourteenth century an active exchange of the achievements between the Florentines and the Paris school, in which France took from Italy a greater rhythmic variety, while Italy gained from France the manner of writing over a faux Bourdon foundation, the result being a decided detriment to the Florentine school, which lost much of its freedom in the invention of independent voices, though it gained in harmonic purity, while of course the consecutive octaves and fifths naturally disappear entirely. Examples of madrigals, cacci, etc., of the Florentine school, may be examined in Johannes Wolff's Geschichte de Notation. A notable specimen by Giovanni da Caccia is the white peacock, quoted by Riemann. The cantori a liuto, who flourished probably throughout the 15th century, performed, no doubt, the compositions of these masters, no less than their own inventions and the popular songs of the day, the frottole, The canzone villanesche and villanelle which resounded through the streets and the campagna of renaissance italy the fifteenth century saw italy well advanced toward the state in which it had been compared to ancient greece the work begun by petrarch had made mighty strides the recovery of ancient learning and ancient art had become the great passion of the age and the worship of beauty was the second, if not the first, creed of a people, but recently emerged from the broils of civil war, and settled down to a prosperous period, under a benevolent tyranny of which the rule of the Medici at Florence was the archetype. Learning and culture had become a badge of nobility, and the patronage of the arts an instrument of power. That music shared in the boon which came to art is unquestionable. A musical education was once again, as in ancient Greece, an essential part of a gentleman's equipment poets and musicians shared the patronage of princes who themselves had no greater ambition than to be accounted men of genius in truth florence had become the athens of the modern world cosimo de medici returned from his venetian exile in fourteen thirty four and once installed in power we see him surrounded by such men as donatello brunelleschi and Luca della Robbia. Gemistos Plethos, the Byzantine Greek, fires his passion for Plato's philosophy, and Marsilio Ficino is trained under his patronage to translate the works of the sage. Vespasiano assures us of his versatility as follows. When giving audience to a scholar, he discoursed concerning letters. In the company of theologians he showed his acquaintance with theology, astrologers found him well versed in their science musicians in like manner perceived his mastery of music wherein he much delighted cosimo's grandson lorenzo the magnificent fourteen forty nine to fourteen ninety two far surpassed his grandsire in talent and culture he was a writer of prose and poetry gave the impulse to the revival of a national literature and may be said to have raised popular poetry to the dignity of an art in writing new verses for the Canzone al Ballo, which the young men and girls sang and danced upon the squares of Florence to celebrate the return of May, and the Canti Canacelleschi, the songs that the Florentine populace sang masked at carnival times. He organized for these occasions great pageants in which he himself took part, engaging the best artists for the embellishment of chariots and the designing of costumes, while he himself wrote songs appropriate to the characters represented on the cars, causing new musical settings to be made by eminent composers. Every festivity, says Simmonds, May morning tournaments, summer evening dances on the squares of Florence, weddings, carnival processions, and vintage banquets at the villa had their own lyrics with music and the carola. Lorenzo's famous academy, constituted perhaps the greatest intellectual galaxy of the age, for at his table sat Angelo Poliziano, Cristoforo Landino, Marsilio Ficino, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, Leo Battista Alberti, Michelangelo Buonarroti, and Luigi Pulci. Surrounded by these companions, we behold him in the streets of Florence, not disdaining to perform his own songs, in the midst of an approving populace, or perchance when florence sleeps beside the silvery arno and the large italian stars come forth above accompanied by a few kindred spirits lute in hand singing the verses of a dante or a petrarch to the accompaniment of soft italian zephyrs or again in his villa on the steep slope of that lofty hill crowned by the mother city the ancient fiesole with michelangelo seated between ficino and politian With the voices of prophets vibrating in his memory, and with the music of Plato sounding in his ears, till Pulci breaks the silence with a brand new canto of Morgante, or a singing boy is bidden to tune his mandolin to Messer Angelo's last made ballata. To such gatherings of boon companions, and to the small domestic circle, the cantori liuto were finally relegated, for, as we shall see, their usefulness had been outlived such men as these were the perpetuators of their art and the last perhaps to cultivate the spontaneous monodies of their florentine forebears for it is unthinkable that these worshippers of beauty these aesthetic sentimentalists should have escaped the charm of that school and have forgone it in favour of that which followed for meantime the musicians of the netherlands school continued to spread their propaganda in italy and so successfully that their contrapuntal works began to supersede the native monodic style their method had indeed undergone great improvement. Josquin de Pré and his more expressive style had achieved tremendous popularity throughout Europe. Footnote. During 1471 to 1488, Josquin was at the Papal Chapel in Rome. His popularity there is illustrated by the following episode. When a motet was performed in a distinguished social circle, it passed almost without notice until the hearers became aware that Josquin was its composer, when all hands promptly proceeded to express their admiration of it. End of footnote. Toward the end of the 15th century, these masters cultivated the secular forms more and more, always, of course, in their wanted contrapuntal method. They would frequently take the melody of a favourite folk song, use it as their tenor, the middle part, around which they wove an artful counterpoint. In Germany, the harmonization of popular melodies, or melodies in the popular vein, had been going forward for some time, and it is a noteworthy fact that Heinrich Isaac, one of those most prominently engaged in this work, was organist in Florence from 1484 to 1494, and again after 1514. The style of writing adopted in these popular settings was a simple note-against-note, which emphasized chord progressions rather than melodic integrity definite ideas of harmony were beginning to take root about this time. Ramis de Pareja, the Spanish theoretician, in 1482, had by his new mathematical definitions of the ratio of intervals established the consonant nature of the triad. Franchino Gaffori and Ludovico Foliano, died 1539, had insisted upon the same principle. In 1558, Josefo Zalino, gave to the world his Institutione Harmonicae, which, following the Ptolemaean determination of intervals, established the natural relations of the tones of the major triad, Divisione Harmonica, and in the course of the century his ideas of harmony became the common property of musicians. With harmony as the predominating principle of music, with vertical hearing rather than horizontal as the prevailing habit, and the constant freer use of chromatics, the doom of ecclesiastical modes was sounded even if not fully accomplished till later and the real advent of modern music had been reached the italians from early times as to-day primarily and essentially melodists never found great appeal in the barbarous descant and counterpoint of the netherlanders but they could not but perceive the charm of harmony once it had been cleansed of its dross when composers no longer worked for the eye of their expert colleagues alone but for the ears of the people as well hence polyphonic music was gradually accepted in the place of the native monodies, which had now lost caste and it became fashionable to perform motets for the entertainment of one's guests however the number of native singers able to perform this learned music was insufficient to supply even the churches outside rome much less the palaces of the aristocracy until the increased influx of Netherlanders as singers and teachers spread their art among the musicians of Italy. During the 16th century, the simplification of notation made the art of reading music accessible to the dilettanti, who now formed musical coteries for the performance of polyphonic songs. Native composers busied themselves to supply the demand, and their products were spread broadcast by enterprising publishers, for meantime, in 1476, The art of printing had been introduced in rome the first of these publishers was ottaviano dei petrucci who though not its inventor so advanced the art of music printing as to render it a practical medium his office in venice produced in 1501 a collection of ninety-six songs written by various composers thus he brought polyphonic music to the people and so caused the old monodies of the lutanists and earlier masters to pass still farther into oblivion. Among the native products of Petrucci's press, we see a number of four-part songs of lighter genre called frottale. This was a simple, popular form, akin to the ballata, and usually supposed to be of humorous content. The frottola was essentially a street song, originally sung to an improvised accompaniment, and did not really belong to the a cappella species. But in Petrucci's collection, between 1504 and 1509, he published nine books of Frotelet, They appear as polyphonic pieces in a manner of the time. In this guise, they were stepping stones to a nobler form, which was to achieve immense popularity, and, practiced by the more educated circles of amateurs, became the chamber music of the period. This was the Madrigal, or, to be precise, the new Madrigal, for though the old verses of Dante, Petrarch, etc. served as basses, its musical structure had little to do with the earlier form. This, in fact, was the only excuse for adopting the name Madrigal for this new type of composition. Composers were weary of the short forms, with their endless repetition of phrases, and recognising the superiority of the old classic poems, both in sentiment and structure, proceeded to apply to them their polyphonic skill. Like in the motet, the setting was continuous, <laughs> with or without reiteration of musical ideas, but unlike that stereotyped form, the madrigal was the child of free invention throughout, not a contrapuntal exercise upon a given cantus firmus. The tenor was not more prominent than the other voices, neither on the other hand was the treble a real melody in the modern sense, being the result of simultaneous calculation. The madrigal was the a cappella composition par excellence, and as the secular counterpoint of the motet, became the standard form in which the pure vocal style was developed. Adrian Willett, 1480-1562, to the founder of the so-called Venetian school, whose activities as a church composer we shall recount in the next chapter, is generally considered the father of the new Madrigal. Though others went before him, it was he who endowed it with the freshness and vitality which made its extraordinary vogue possible. Master Adrian, says Ambrose, found in the smaller frottele of a marco caro and others many noble serious expressions of sentiment this coloret this peculiar tone he retained together with the manner of treating italian verse but in place of the timid poor and often clumsy technique of the italians he applied to them the entire netherland mastery of accomplished counterpoint and the madrigal was ready the madrigal was to express only the pure and the profound the cor gentile, was the centre of this poetry and music. The heart moved by noble love, with its joys and pains, its love, hope, longing, suffering and anger. The tone of the madrigal is ever one of tender emotion, never of vehement passion. It should never burst out in unbeautiful, violent expressions. Analyzing one of his madrigals, Riemann says that on the whole there is so much originality so much individual endeavour that the lack of flowering fancy and warm blood is willingly overlooked. We feel as one does in the case of moderns, for instance Berlioz, that we are in the presence of a distinguished personality. Willett is great by virtue of the various impulses that he gave as teacher, as eminent artist, but not really because of his compositions. If we compare him to the passionate Verdelot, the daring Archidelt, the solemn festa, the supple gero, or the genial rore, commanding all the nuances of expression, any one of these will be found more telling. But in all of the works of these, his pupils, we find the traces of his genius. Riemann has here named the greatest of the madrigalists, some of whom we must now consider further. They were all not only learned contrapuntists, but consummate masters of style as is shown by the restraint with which they applied their skill, and they have left us works which for purity of style and graceful flow of melody can scarcely be exceeded. Philippe Verdelot's Madrigals appear even before those of Willet, 1538, but few have been preserved with all parts complete. He probably lived in Italy during 1525 to 1565, Florence and Venice. His second book of five-part Madrigals, appeared in 1536, and in the same year, Willert published Lute Arrangements of Verdelot's Madrigals. Besides nine books of madrigals, four to six parts, he left motets for up to eight parts and a large mass, Philomena. But the success of his madrigals was even surpassed by those of Jacques Arcadelt, a native of the Netherlands, born 1514. The latter died in Paris after 1557 he appears a singer at the court of Florence, from 1540 to 1549, when he became one of the papal singers of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, and singing master to the boys at St. Peter's. Besides compositions which appeared in miscellaneous collections, he published independently five books of four-part madrigals, 1537 to 1544, another for three parts, all of which went rapidly through many editions, besides three Masses and a book of motets. One of his madrigals, Il Bianco e Dolce Chino, a notable example of the style, is reprinted by Burney. The well-known Ave Maria, which has been edited by Sir Henry Bishop and transcribed by Liszt, is now thought to be of doubtful authorship. Constanzo Festa, of Rome, where he was papal chapel singer from 1517 till his death in 1545, the first Italian representative of the imitative vocal style in church composition, is, with Willert and Verdolo, the originator of the new madrigal. His Amor che mi consigli, published in 1531, even points to him as the first in the field. His works are distinguished by rhythm, grace, elegance, simplicity and purity of harmony burney further assures us that the subjects of imitation in it are as modern and that the parts sing as well as if they were a production of the eighteenth century his madrigal Quando retrovo la mia pastorella translation down in the flowery vale was for a long time the most popular piece of its kind in england he was less happy in his motets, in which he followed the absurd custom of setting the voice to different texts. A celebrated te deum by him is still sung by the pontifical choir upon the election of a new pope. Vesta attained the dignity of maestro at the Vatican, being at that time the only Italian to hold such position. The most distinguished pupil of Willert was Cipriano di Rore, born circa 1516, at mechlin or antwerp after leaving willet's tutelage in venice he went to the court of hercules the second at ferrara in fifteen forty two where in the same year his first book of madrigals was brought out after sundry travels in his native country he was made maestro di capella to Duke ottavio farnese at parma returning to venice as willet's successor upon the latter's death he enjoyed great distinction as a composer of originality of his ecclesiastical works we shall speak in a following chapter as a composer of madrigals and ricercari, he followed in his master's footsteps eight books of four to five part madrigals published from fifteen forty two to fifteen sixty five of which the four part ones were issued in score form in fifteen seventy seven as an aid to the study of counterpoint constitute the bulk of his secular works it will be well to mention here that monteverdi half a century later acclaimed the divine cipriano di Rore as the founder of the new art because of his endeavours in establishing the supremacy of melody luca marenzio born near brescia fifteen fifty to fifteen sixty was probably the most distinguished of all the madrigalists though he by no means limited himself to this field his contemporaries called him il piu dolce Cigna, translation the sweetest swan divino compositore, etc., and he enjoyed the highest musical eminence. About 1584 he was maestro to Cardinal d'Este. Later, at the court of Sigismund III of Poland, received the unusual salary of 1,000 scudi, and was organist of the papal chapel in Rome from 1585 till his death in 1594. Caused, it was said, by a broken heart, because of his love, for a relative of Cardinal Aldobrandini, whom he could not marry. His printed compositions comprise no less than 18 books of madrigals, four to six voices, and many ecclesiastical works. Of further names we need only mention Constanzo Porta of Padua, 1530 to 1601, Giovanni Croce of Venice, 1557 to 1609, Andrea and Giovanni Gabrielli, of whom we shall speak in a later chapter, Claudio Merulo of correggio fifteen fifty three to sixteen o four and Carlo Gesualdo, Prince of venosa fifteen sixty to sixteen fourteen the most daring and most genial harmonist of the sixteenth century, and finally the Princely Lasso and the great Palestrina himself, as a few of the endless hosts of madrigal writers, not thousands but tens of thousands of madrigals were composed in this period. It was the accepted medium for the expression of every poetic idea, every pretty sentiment. People sang madrigals at home and abroad, in society and for private pastime. In short, its popularity has not been surpassed even by the modern song. A distinct departure from the madrigal of Willet, and one in which historians are wont to see a direct step toward the opera, is seen in the descriptive or dramatic madrigals of Alessandro Striggio, born mantua fifteen thirty five and Orazio vecchi the descriptive element had indeed invaded song composition much earlier the french programme chansons notably those of clermont jeannequin who attempted to reproduce in vocal music the song of birds and the noise of battle were perhaps the most remarkable phenomena of this kind though not an italian jeannequin deserved notice here because of his influence in this direction He was a pupil of Josquin, and besides a varied lot of sacred works, issued a great number of chansons which became popular as bravura pieces in instrumental form, being printed in Italy without texts in 1577. Partite in caselle persona. His great chansons, or inventions, which stamp him the programmistic composer of the 16th century, include La Bataille, on the Battle of Marignano, 1515. La guerre, le Caquet des femmes (women's gossip), la jalousie, la chasse aux lièvres (rabbit hunt), etc., etc. A curious example is the excerpt reprinted in our supplement. In it, the cuckoo's call, the nightingale's song, the notes of the thrush, and other sounds of nature's music are introduced simultaneously. Verdelot's realistic description of the chase eckhard's tumult of the people at st mark's and Strigio's dispute of the washerwomen at the brook are additional instances in which vocal music appropriated the dramatic elements of action movement the passing shapes and the play of colours in the hands of these composers the madrigal became a vehicle for humorous or whimsical moods no less than for the expression of tender sentiments or a charming picturesque and dramatic symphony for which Roman Roland finds an analogy in the Romeo and Juliet symphony of Berlioz. Such are Orazio Vecchi's La Selva di Varia Ricciatone, 1590, Musical Banquet, 1597, and Amphiparnasso. They are in reality series of madrigals which follow out a continuous idea as in dramatic action, their text comprising the dramatic forms of monologue and dialogue, but curious as it may seem, never set to music in the way that seems natural to us, as solos, duets, etc., but always in madrigalesque polyphony. Thus, instead of having the singers represent the different characters of the piece, the actual practice was to have the monologue section sung by all of them, while the dialogue would be carried on between sets of two or three singers each. For example, if Isabella, in Amphiparnaso, speaks to her lover Lucio, a group of three voices represents each of them isabella is characterized by a soprano and supported by an alto and a quinto lucio represented by a tenor sustained by a quinto and a bass never did it occur to the composer even when the text was marked lucio solo actually to write for a solo voice by this we may understand what a revolution was necessary in men's minds to accomplish the essential step to dramatic fidelity the following is Roman Roland's pen picture of the most interesting exponent of the dramatic madrigal. Orazio Vecchi, born Modena fifteen fifty, died there in sixteen oh five, was a man of the Renaissance. He possessed its superabundance of vigour, the desire for action, and a robust good humour. Chapelmaster at Modena, we find him on the highways and byways of Italy indoors only to take part in brawls and coltellate commissioned as archdeacon of corregio to correct the gradual of the roman catholic church he is occupied in fifteen ninety one with directing private and public masquerades in modena a writer of celebrated masses he becomes at the same time the creator of opera buffa three times the bishop of reggio dismissed him from his function but his reputation was enormous the house of este and the great italian lords extended their favour to him while his name spread to austria to denmark and to poland at his death in sixteen o five he was regarded not only as one of the foremost musicians of the century and the inventor of musical comedy but as one of the greatest geniuses of the age comedy is indeed his sphere; rarely does he ascend to the height of pathos and passion though he amply proves himself capable of portraying earnest sentiment and sometimes pathos. But the question whether he merits the reputation of having created comic opera or not, we shall leave to the judgment of the reader. First we shall let him speak for himself. I know well, he says, that peradventure some will consider my caprices as unworthy and light, but they should learn that as much grace, art, and fidelity is required to trace a comic part, as in representing an old reasoning sage. And elsewhere... Music is poetry by the same right as poetry itself. That the conscious purpose of his music was the expression of ideas is evident from these directions which preface his Amphipanaso. Everything here has a precise purpose. It is necessary to find this, and only by expressing it well and intelligently will you give life to the performance. The moral import of the piece is of no less consequence than the simple comedy— Since music appeals to the emotions rather than the intellect, I have been obliged to compress the development of the action into the smallest space, for speech is more rapid than song. Hence it is necessary to condense, contract, suppress detail, and only to take the capital situations, the moments characteristic to the subject. The imagination must supply the rest. Vecchi's disciple, Bankieri, gives a clear account of the manner of performing these madrigals in the preface to La Commedia di Prudenza Giovanile. Before the music, one of the singers will read in a loud voice the name of the scene, the names of the characters, and the argument. The place of performance is a room of medium size, as closed in as possible for the sake of acoustics. In one corner of the room, two large carpets are laid on the floor, and an agreeable decoration is used for the background. Two seats are placed at the right and left, respectively. Behind the backdrop are benches for the singers, who must turn toward the audience and be seated at a hand's breadth from each other. Behind them is an orchestra of lutes, clavichemboli, etc., attuned to the voices. Above is a large sheet, which hides both singers and musicians. The singers, invisible, follow the music of their parts. There should be three, or better, six at a time. They must give animation to the cheerful words, pathos to the sad ones and enunciate loudly and intelligibly. The reciting actors, alone on the scene, must prepare their roles, know them well by heart and follow the music closely. It would not be amiss to have a prompter aid the singers, instrumentalists and reciters. These actors do not, as may be supposed, perform pantomime. They simply pronounce the prologue and announce the scenes at the end they would perhaps dance a few ballet steps in order to leave the spectator in a happy frame of mind by way of example we shall briefly recount the plot of vecchi chef d'oeuvre that commedia armonica of the strangely inexplicable title Amphiparnaso. the story centres around the love intrigue of lucio and isabella the daughter of pantalone who has determined to marry her to the pedantic Glatiano. Lucio attempts to commit suicide but is saved. Isabella, about to follow him into death, declares her love. They are married and in the last scene receive the forced consent and the presence of all concerned. Meantime Pantalone serenades and is rejected by the courtesan Hortensia. Lelio pursues another adventure with the beautiful Nisa and the captain, Cardone, believing himself loved by Isabella, makes advances and is promptly rebuked. Dr. Gratiano sings absurd serenades, while Franca Trippa, the valet of Pantalone, goes to borrow money at the Jew's house, who reject him under pretext of the Sabbath. The book for this amazing comedy, as indeed for all the others, was written by Vecchi himself. He makes all his characters speak in their various dialects, and the score is full of humorous descriptions and characterizations. The piece had great success, and, while there were many adverse criticisms the number of his imitators attests the continued popularity of the form which he developed adriano banchieri of bologna fifteen sixty seven to sixteen thirty four was vecchi's chief disciple and one of his great admirers he frankly imitated him in his studio di letevole for three voices while in his saviezza giovanile he yields to the influence of the Florentine reform, of which later, and endeavours to present a compromise between the representative and the polyphonic styles. He was, moreover, a musician of great merit, composed, like Vecchi, numerous organ pieces, and was the author of a number of theoretic works and polemics. The vogue of the dramatic Madrigal continued throughout the north of Italy for twenty years after Vecchi's death. In Bologna it survived to the end of the 17th century, Whatever its importance in the development of the opera, however far removed from realistic action, the dramatic principle is there. We have, in fact, a musical drama, or at least a dramatic symphony, especially if we regard the voices which accompany the characters in the nature of instruments. And here it behooves us to record another peculiar fact. These minor voice parts were often actually played on instruments, not only in the dramatic madrigal, but in the other vocal forms as well sometimes because of the lack of singers and sometimes for the sake of variety the first recorded instance of this kind of solo singing was supposed to have occurred in fifteen thirty nine when sileno sang in an intermedio the upper part of a madrigal by francesco corteccia died fifteen seventy one accompanying himself on the violone while the other parts representing satyrs were taken by wind instruments caccini the reputed inventor of monody in an intermezzo by Pietro Strozzi, performed at the marriage of Duke Francesco and Bianca Capello, 1579, himself sang the role of knight with an accompaniment of viols. These instances are, however, not isolated. The experiment proved popular and became common practice. A number of the Frottele, Villanelle, madrigals, etc., which came from Petrucci's press, appeared indeed in the guise of lute arrangements. But all this was as far from true monody, or solo melody, as the dramatic magical was removed from opera, for the mere emphasizing of an upper part, which was developed out of, or as counterpart to, another, could not make it express the sentiment intended by the text, or follow the accents and natural inflections of the spoken word. Monody was as much a lost art as the Greek tragedy, which the inventors of opera thought they were reviving from a slumber of well-nigh two thousand years. Its reinstatement was the result of a deliberate reform, a revolt against the prevailing polyphonic method, accomplished by a limited number of individuals. Even if the analytical historian must reject the possibility of the sudden invention of an artistic form, we cannot deny the merit of the most definite step towards the creation of opera to the Florentine Camerata, an account of whose activities we shall reserve for a later chapter. Our object in this discussion has been to emphasise the fact that monody, the most natural form of musical expression, was not an arbitrary invention, such as the contrapuntal style evidently was, that it lay indeed at the very foundation of that style, but was so effectually displaced by it, that only the faintest memories of it survived. It was from these memories that the new art of the seventeenth century, with its new dramatic significance, sprang, just as the Ars Nova, the new art of the fifteenth century, had sprung from their source. The intervening space of two centuries was a period of prodigious development both in secular and church music, and of the most active exchange between the two. But in this exchange the church unquestionably remained the debtor, for it acquired from the secular art most of its really vital elements, even dramatic force. Only thus could it become the ideal expression of that new religious spirit with which both the Catholic and Protestant faiths were to be imbued. The development of this religious art, which forms a parallel to the movements just described, is our next subject. End of section 18